when you're in the space of it and you're working so hard, taking some chips off the table is is fundamental. You know, how, how big will, will the brand grow without you? We are ingrained, I think, as a family to never settle and we all want to grow something. And, and I guess I'll always have the thing behind me and, and on, on my shoulder is creating a brand that is more successful than, than what we've done in the past. Welcome to Secret Leaders. Today, I'm joined by James Dashwood Chase, the founder and director of Bazandco. Growing up on a farm as part of the family behind Tyrrell's Crisps, he lived the experience of building a brand from a young age. James went on to co-found Chase Distillery with his father, William Chase, a company that produced award-winning gin and vodka before being sold to Diageo. He was then the driving force behind Willy's, an organic apple cider vinegar brand now stocked everywhere from Waitrose to Ocado and, as a gut health obsessive myself, my own fridge, of course. He was inspired to launch a super premium male skincare brand after reaching his 30s and realizing the need for better self-care after a decade of long hours in the drinks industry. Baz & Co was launched in late 2022 and it's already been recognized as one of the brands of tomorrow by Walpole, a luxury industry body in the UK. I've got my hands on the product. It smells great, looks amazing, and so do I as a result of it. So James, welcome to Secret Leaders. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. It's funny listening to your, uh, you know, your story. Um, part of me is just thinking, right, okay, so this guy got me fat on crisps and then got me healthy from my gut inside out and now I'm shining thanks to his skin cream. Is, is there some sort of guilt about what you might have done to me originally and you're trying to rectify it a little bit? I think every founder has a, has a you know, a stimulus to create things. And I guess my story and, and our stories of family is is the brands that we've created and the journey that we've been on um, to get to where we are today. And we, we strongly believe health wellness is post a COVID environment, you know, should be number one priority in, in people's lives. And we're happy to hopefully deliver brands um, that, that let people uh, really get behind that movement. So usually I do ask guests to, you know, start, you know, tell me about your childhood. And I'd love to know about your childhood, but it's rare that childhood of the guest involves another brand people are so familiar with. And it's always so interesting to speak to people and learn what made you interested in becoming an entrepreneur. And with yours, I think it'll be maybe slightly more obvious, but I'd love to know a little bit about what it was like growing up for you. Set the scene. Yeah, so I, I grew up on a, a very small farm called Tyrrell's Court in North Herefordshire. Uh, Herefordshire has a population of about 60,000. So it's it's really it's really not on the way to anywhere unless you're going to Anglesey, um, but it's home to some amazing characters gardeners but the you know the main reason it, it has a great population is because it's always has always has been a farming county the the soil is rich and fertile and you'll see that in the, the intense red land so um i guess if you're traveling ever ever anybody of your audience has ever been to hereford chances are you're you're stuck behind a tractor going through its narrow winding lanes but um our family really gets its pedigree from from growing potatoes and it really is potatoes that grow especially well in its in its rich rich red soil as well as well as you know crops like cider fruit. So farming was in my blood from an early day. Um, my father necessarily didn't take on it on a huge farm, and and it was it was a, it was a struggle growing up. We 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 worked very hard. My parents worked very hard to begin with on the farm, and and really trying to establish what crop would um, would benefit our family the most. Uh, and it was trading potatoes that really kind of gave us a lifeblood. And, and my father, you know, worked exceptionally hard growing up. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of stories in the consensus from the public that, you know, that farming is quite an easy thing that you inherit this this big land mass and, and you, you know, you switch on a button and it produces food. But um, I think many farmers out there will tell you something very different. And for us, it was it was incredibly hard work. And I really have my parents to thank for that. And part of that hard work has hopefully rubbed off uh, into me and and my values in life. I think we were really hard up against it growing growing up, and and it got to the early noughties And I think we really found as a family we needed to diversify and we needed to create margin in what we were doing. We were ultimately trading something with a very low margin, and at that time the rise of these big supermarkets were very much commanding the price point that farmers were getting. Uh, so we needed to to create potentially a brand and. Cut the long story short, my my father was inspired after a a trip about um, the potato chip, which is called in America the gourmet potato chip, and realizing that a batch of his potatoes uh, were perfectly good, um, were were being fed into kind of a leading posh crisp maker at the time, kettle chips, 
he realized, well, if I could grow very good potatoes, there could be a you know competitor in this space. We, we're a nation where it rains so much in this country. We, we love growing potatoes, but we love eating crisps. And obviously Walker's um, you know, was, was, a, was a big brand at that time. So the premiumization move happened for us when we created the brand Tyrrell's uh, Crisps, originally Tyrrell's Chips, because we were really trying to go after the gourmet market. And yeah, focusing on independent customers that were willing to, to tell the story. And my father's kind of great line was, it wasn't unusual for a potato to be picked in the morning and to be turned into a, a crisp by that, by that afternoon. And, and, and farmers were pretty unheard of in the FMCG space. And my father, you know, reported to be traveling down the M4 in his tractor to deliver Chris to London sandwich shops was was really um, inspiring news. And, and, and press really got, got behind the brand and Tyrrell's, what we now know has become a household success. But it really was Herefordshire that, that intrigued people's curiosity. And the brand still thrives on the farm that we own in North Herefordshire. And it's exported all around the world, which um, uh, which is fantastic to see. It's amazing. Like, it's such a great story. And actually, I want to say one thing. When you said that about farmers, a couple of years ago, I would totally relate. But it is incredibly fascinating how much positive movement Clarkson's Farm must have done for the plight of farmers. (laughs) Yeah. I say this to my wife all the time. I would say that's the most entertaining show either of us have seen in the last couple of years mostly because we don't like Jeremy Clarkson which is the perfect ingredient (laughs) because everything that goes wrong to a typical farmer happens to him and you don't feel bad for him but you understand that he's representing one of many farmers and so you actually feel vicariously terrible for them and it looks like an insanely hard job with little reward so much unpredictability and I feel like they managed with that show to really get the agenda on the map for the first time for general people like me and my wife who wouldn't otherwise care because we're so far away from it. We live in London. And really what that show taught me was we can have lobbying and conversations like this and all of the things about all the important things that happen in the world. But if you really want to get a message out to people, entertain them. Yeah, I think... um probably what farmers lack is maybe sometimes the ability to communicate well. They're very good at rearing sheep, you know, staying up for long nights and irrigating their potatoes. But but communicating to people, as we all know, is is a skill. And Clarkson has an amazing ability to communicate, you know, in and a reality. Good, he does a good job of showing how <laughs> the other farmers don't communicate so well in that show as well. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. And he he's all about shining a light on real characters. Look, he... You know, he's sitting on a thousand acres in the Cotswolds. He probably doesn't need to do much on that farm for the for the asset class to increase in price. But he has done a fantastic job to bring, you know, the narrative back to the customer because the politicians won't. Mm. Um, you know, there's such a a small voting population within farmers. So why should why would they care? Um, but but, you know, if you look at the stats, you know, we we import about 50 percent of all of the food that we eat in this country and we need more people to be paying more respect to farmers to, to to pay a better price. Frankly, I think food is too cheap in supermarkets. It, it's ridiculous that you can buy you know chickens for as cheap as they are, or or milk is actually cheaper than you know than a pint of mineral water. Um, but but through entertainment, hopefully people are maybe reassessing what they spend things on. So um, you know rather than you know maybe go on that trip, they're actually prioritising their health and wellness now through eating more nutritiously and without getting into a big long story about the failure of the NHS you know we need to get be more into preventative health care and that starts with you know rich and balanced diet and that that comes from understanding the farmer that's that's you know that's made your produce absolutely agree and uh, on on the same mission with my company so I totally agree with you I want to just understand so obviously you grew up in a normal story of a farm and a farmer's family etc etc and then at some point in your life how old were you when the brand becomes a global sensation and at such a household name and I'd also love to get a sense of how big has that brand become like what are the do you release any figures is there any information just in terms of the storytelling so we get a sense of how big it is well, we, 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 we exited the brand fully uh, and it's been on a journey now owned by a, hopefully what's called, I, I call a forever home where it's alongside notable other snacking brands. It's a German company called KP Snacks and it's, it's seen a meteoric rise trades in most supermarkets. 
I, I don't have uh, complete up to date numbers, but um, uh, it, it very much is a global brand and and very much challenges now kettle chips uh, in the supermarkets in terms of what what premium the brand still thrives on the farm is, that we bought. own. So it's done a, a fantastic job to get there. And I, th- I think yeah, to answer your question about seeing it i you know it didn't feel so long ago to me that i was cycling down our village lanes in herefordshire with see-through crisp packets to give to locals when we just started the the run and we stayed up all night frying potatoes and i've got a bit of a scar on my shoulder where i burnt myself on the on the chip fat so that that journey yeah doesn't seem too long ago um i guess you know we'd probably still be loved to be involved with the brand but that's that's how it goes sometimes you you realize an exit and you have to you know look forward and move on but um, it was a it was a great space, great margin, great category to to be in. Um, uh, but I guess that you know the challenges now around the the you know change in society's need for more healthier and uh, more nutritiously dense uh, snacks. Um, but uh, but for me, it's still a, a fantastic Chris to have at a dinner party. How life changing was it having an exit for your dad and your family? And also, how did other farmers relate to you before and after? I think when you're when you're in the space of it and you're working so hard taking some chips off the table is you know is is fundamental because you you, you realize that and you, you ultimately try and guess you know how, how big will will the brand grow without you there were certainly independent customers once you sell out that probably won't go on to back you and if the next acquirer then is focused on uh, multiple retailers looking for discounts and promotions I guess that's where the challenge goes because if you supported those independent farm shops from day one and then you're suddenly you know trying to go for global domination it, it is a hard challenge so in terms of those customers yeah I, I guess they do treat you differently but but hopefully we we brought them other brands that they can make margin and, and profit on notably the the distillery and other brands that we'll talk about later my brother still has a contract with Tyrrells to grow the potatoes for so I put my hands up I'm a, I'm a light touch farmer I grow a few things in my garden but my brother took on the mantle of um of going into farming and he still holds contracts with, with Tyrrells and Chase Distillery, um, which is which is great to see because I, I can't tell you, Dan, how many board meetings I sat in uh, where where it, was it vital that the potato grew from that field to, to make the story. And um, I think that was always, you know, really, really important as you scale, you know, how important are those kind of single ingredients and, and the location of where you grow them from. But um, yeah, of course there is. But but I, I also caveat any of the negativity with inspiration and it's amazing to see how many great food and drink brands are coming out of Herefordshire now. I think there's a couple of crisp brands. I think there's 20 odd gin and vodka companies and they're all starting to diversify because they've got the confidence and they've seen other people do these brands and risk something. So um, yeah, I I take it more as inspiration that have given to these farmers uh, an opportunity to put themselves out there and to storytell what they're good at, which which I think is is a fantastic thing to see. I guess a similar question is, you know, presumably whether or not, uh, you know, willing to talk about it or not. When your dad exits, he goes from being a poor farmer to a rich person one way or another. And that is like, according to general population discourse, you know, you and I would broadly see that. You don't even need to know the numbers. You see farmer has exit of brand with high margin. You only have to fill in the dots. So... I'm curious how other people related to him, his friends, you know, other poor farmers, you know, people that are life, lifelong friends. Did it create an unusual experience for your dad who just had never had that experience? And did people treat him differently? And did people treat your family differently? Now you weren't holding the old narrative, right? You're now like innovative, wealthy people. Might sound like a strange question, but I'm always so fascinated to explore that on this podcast because the answers are always so insightful. Yeah, like the nouveau riche of coming from a small farm, you know, to, to go big. But if, if ever people have had the, you know, luck to, to meet Will, my dad, or, you know, it, it, we all know that it's just, we're just rolling on into the next thing. And and I think that kind of calms any any points around that. And by going straight into building a distillery uh, at the height of an economic crisis, wasn't probably the smartest move and and when copper prices were at their all-time heights we piled in building a craft distillery fully out fully out of the metal so so i think we weren't escaping we weren't i mean social media wasn't too much around them but we weren't gloating we were rolling straight into the next thing and and that thing was was obsessive and that was trying to bring a new generation into you know craft spirits and field to bottle distilling so um 
we've always done that. We've 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 rolled into the next brand. We, you know, should we have stayed in that first brand to begin with? I guess that maybe is a sign of our character and this kind of never settling attitude. But um, uh, but 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 I guess yeah, we 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 want to to keep growing and advancing and and moving into the next thing. And that's really where you know Chase Distillery comes in from from that journey of, of going out to America and seeing the rise of you know craft gins and vodkas and um you know this need to to bring you know the people of the uk um spirits with with pedigree if you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the uk you're probably going to need iso 27001 at some point it's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So talk to us a little bit about that journey then. So you, um, potato legends, turn those potatoes into chips, take your chips off the table and stick them into a copper distillery. What is like the timeline around these things? And, you know, how are you as a guy growing up in this family, like you and your brother, actually, you know, how are you positioned around it? What are you learning? What's your experience? What's your involvement? What's your roles? So we we grew up we grew, just grew up in a very hardworking environment and and that can't be st- stressed enough I think you know putting putting the hours in and and going from there and my dad was you know dad was in this family role you know fa- I've, so I've got so much admiration for family companies because they're the backbone of of society and you know I put my hands up you know family businesses are challenging environments to be around you know you you've got to split higher priorities and um, you know lucky for us we've gone into categories like distilling for instance where you know if you look back at most notable vineyards and distilleries there are so many different roles um you know that come out of out of them from you know accounting marketing sales operations um production farming so uh, it allowed us to kind of split our our our, our kind of uh, what we what we do best in you know to form into the different roles but um yeah, it was uh, it was it was a tough environment because we we grew up and there was a need to work hard to to pay the bills. Um, and and I I guess the you know the the challenge I've always had is 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 not wanting to go straight into farming and, and letting my brother have that course. But I was very fortunate that other opportunities came up in our family business, um, such as marketing uh, and sales to you know to to drive awareness and to going back to what we talked about with Clarkson is you know trying to find that ability to communicate what the you know what the farm does but I, I was lucky that I'm very different to my brother and we we have very different skill sets um but it allowed us to to follow truly what we were passionate about and I've always got my family to thank uh for for letting us um you know letting us fulfill that destiny and especially the 
<laughs> the um, not the stupidity, but that led us to come into the to the family business as well. And I think that's helped underscore our uh, our you know our story because there's always that saying, you know, one generation makes it, second one maintains it, and the third third generation. Uh, spends it and um, I was just gonna say destroys it isn't it usually <laughs> I think they use the Rothschild story pretty much to define that one yeah yeah ex- exactly so um yeah so yeah to, to go back to your point uh yeah there, there's always been challenges but I think we're we're very apt to you know sticking to our areas um uh, and yeah we're, we're very grateful for that amazing okay so at what point in the distillery business are you getting your hands really dirty and uh and 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 starting to think about exit and starting to think about your own next thing and starting your own thing like I guess the question is you've done it once then you guys as a family are doing it twice I know that you had an exit to Diageo but yeah were you always planning to sell or did that did that opportunity actually surprise you so I think Dan once once you've gone through one exit Tyrrells I think you kind of you put your marker in the sand and however much we, we like to think that, you know, potentially uh, you, you can do it again. I think you'll, you'll cast that spell, but, but yeah, Chase, Chase was, you know, it was a, it was a tough battle. So we came through 2008 economic crisis. We'd been to America, Barack Obama had pulled down the jurisdiction on, on distillings. There was a, a new wave of craft distillers out there championing great tasting spirits um, and and flavor, and you saw that boom of craft breweries and distilleries that have kind of mushroomed in in America and then flown here across the pond. I think there was probably you know uh, when you start a company that's that's well funded um, out of the back of Tyrrells, I think uh, it was a bit of a niche hobby at the start, using up potatoes that were too small to make uh, the crisps with, and that's how Chase was born on a on a new farm, um, but ultimately just a very small side project. And as we realised the full exit of of Tyrrells around 2010 that we started to then really hone in on on Chase on Chase Distillery. I guess then the needed to start trading and to work up and for us we were all about growing those potatoes, sourcing potatoes that were too small or wonky to be to be turned into Chase Vodka and Chase Vodka was born in 2008 went on to win the world's best tasting vodka in 2010 and as we grew the the brand Loads of other competitors started to come in and Gordon Brown then pulled down his jurisdictions for still sizes, I think in, would it have been 2009, 2010. So Chase was set up on a bigger scale with a lot of investment from the start where we were fermenting, distilling and hand bottling all on one farm, which, which you know, was, was a several, you know, was, 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 a, was a multi-million pound investment from day one off, off the proceeds of Tyrrells. And then from that, from that really step change, Gordon Brown pulled that legislation down and it and it then rose for this mushroom of of gin distilleries to open up here in the UK. And um I've always said, um, and you've probably seen this done in, in your work, ships rise with the tide, and, and no man is an island. And especially when you're building a category, the craft spirit boom, particularly in gin, wasn't built just by by Chase starting early, and, and that was the were a key point of our success was starting early, but all of these other brands coming into the space and once you had the likes of Sip Smith, Gin Mare, Monkey Forty Seven brands that we really looked up to, and as a as a side note, um, you know you should you should keep one eye on your your cost on your competitors, but keep focused on your business. But it was really those competitors that started kind of bringing bringing the challenge to the table. And as we'd focused on vodka for probably a bit too long, gin was really the the, the volume driver that, that got us going and, and a seat at the table um, with those later discussions. Because we were one of actually very few distilleries that that made gin from scratch. It was using that potato vodka and turning it into gin, and and I guess kind of gin blew up because a lot of guys were sourcing neutral grain spirit and putting it through a little a little distillery, which they could then ramp up their volume, which which was great to see. But but obviously we we were part of that journey on on a, on a kind of a, a whole you know top to bottom approach, vertical integration, and then I guess you know everybody probably a lot of your listeners Dan have had that occasion where they've been queuing up in some pub on a Friday night, 30 people deep. And there's always that one person at the front of the bar um, deliberating which gin and which tonic they should have. And we kind of guessed peak gin saturation came in about 2018, 2019, when there was just so many brands on the market and Fever Tree were kind of leading the premiumization of the tonic market. We, we thought, you know, this is a really hard category to truly disrupt because the competition is just so fierce. And we're not a champagne or a tequila where we're governed by an area. 
um, albeit that we're field to bottle distillers, we always used to get lumped into, you know, to the gin market and it got harder and harder to, to really tell our narrative. And I guess we were at a crossroads, Dan, whether we either keep it as a long family business um, and something that my kids maybe could have gone into and my brothers um, to, to take on for generations, or we felt now was that right time once we'd kind of passed the, the magical 60,000 nine litre cases kind of target that we could we could look for an acquirer and we um we we decided as a board in in 2019 to start looking for partners and it was at that time that I was in America trying to you know find scale in our distribution um that I kind of got a chance to to kind of meet meet other you know big scale distillers down there to see you know that what what would be the chances for a partnership or a 100% acquirer because when you look at you know when you look at that journey if you turn the other direction you've either got, you know, private equity or you're finding a forever home for the brand. And if you look at forever homes of brands within the spirit sector, there's really just a handful, you know, your Diages, Bacardi Brown Foreman, Pernod Ricards, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a very small field. So there's there's definitely certain opportunities and kind of finishing out the, the point once we'd agreed as, as a board, um, we went into negotiation and, and, and got interest from, from Diageo in early 2020, which was amazing to see because they were, you know, a, a, an English London listed based global um, distrib- distributor and, and owner of brands, including Guinness and Smirnoff. And we thought this would be um, an amazing opportunity for for the brand to reach its, um, its next level. And any details on the exit available online or announced now? Um, so we, we completed the deal um, in 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 March 2021. Getting to 60,090 cases was was a benchmark for us, and and as we've seen with other spirit transactions, it's it's a great market to be in because the the multiple the sales multiple um, was was great, and we were very happy with with what we achieved. Um, I guess like with um, with Tyrrells, we we still own the farm and. And we hope now that Diageo will will continue to invest in the brand and the story that made it um, that made it so great again. But um, yeah, looking back on it, it was it was such an amazing period because the deal came online for exclusivity in twenty twenty, but then COVID happened, and I moved back to uh, live with my mum close to the distillery, and um, a couple of months later, the deal fell off the table and. We had started to hand bottle hand sanitizer, and we, because we were one of the dis- only distillers in the UK that was making things from scratch, um, we were we were able to make a lot of hand sanitizer that we uh, that we we gave away in the in the, in the you know several hundred thousand units that we produced and and scaled up that brand. So it was just the most amazing time in in my life um, of of kind of total total change and and, and landscape, but. Um, but we were then very happy that at the end of that year, Diageo came back on board on full deal terms, and we were able to complete in in early twenty twenty one. So, uh, a kind of a roller coaster of emotions. Um, but I'm so happy that they came back now to to support um, really their only English uh, distillery, which which is great to see. And obviously, Diageo also bought Ryan Reynolds Aviation Gym brand for about six hundred million dollars, right? So, are you close to that? Do you have the star power of Ryan Reynolds going on there? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know whether that deal is is closely um, uh, materialised just yet, and what what their right. um, volumes have been hit in the future. But we certainly were, were very happy with with what we achieved. I think there's always a time when when you want more, but but if you've got ideas and things that you want to do in the future. You need to get on with with doing that, and we were we were really happy that we had a brand partner like Diageo, who were not just looking to three X the company and to buy their next Ferrari. They were <laughs> they were looking to support that brand over many years to come, and and um, you know that that was a real close consideration for us, considering that you know just like the uh, George Foreman grill, our, our name <laughs> our name was above the door, and it was on every bottle, and 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 Dad's signature was on the bottle. So we wanted to make sure that the brand home was. Um, was in keeping with that. We're quite unusual. We're not a George Clooney, Ryan Reynolds back brand, and, and those brands are fantastic in their place. We are a family brand with great values and great sustainability credentials in terms of, you know, renewable energy and our fill-to-bottle farming ethos. So, um, yeah, I think it will be a, an interesting move for Diageo and how they look to, to to scale a kind of slightly different brand than, than is used to their celebrity model. So after the exit, 
who's like how how do you do the transition like did you have an earn out did you have to stay on with Diageo did you buy yourself anything like, anything particularly interesting to give yourself a pat on the back that this part of the journey is over and there's something new yeah so yeah it happens the most strange strange moment because you're coming out of covid and you're there's so many emotions going on and there's a lot of video calls so it's um it was an amazing thing to do and the kind of senior management and the team did an exceptional job through that through that process and i guess when you when you realize the the next chapter i i stayed on for a period as with a few other members of the team to see that integration within diageo and i think it was i think few founders probably will tell you that they stay on with their acquire and things turn out really well but but most know that um i think once you've got another partner in the business and and you've agreed those terms they've got their strategy and i think you can be an advisor for so long but they need to take that vision and and run from it and i think it's um there's there's definitely a, a lesson there and and i very i see it very rarely that that founders stay in the businesses and you know really work well with with their acquirer obviously it depends who it is and, and what the deal terms are but um yeah, we, we, we had a yeah, 100% and, and um, we still own the farm. So my brother is involved in running that and sorting that relationship with Diageo in terms of how they operate, what they're investing in there and the potato supply. But but for me, uh, no, I think we, just like dad, we invested straight into the next brand and we invested in more equipment at Willie's uh, in terms of fermenting space and brewers. And um, and then I, I I was really tempted to go into the to the cosmetic market. But um yeah, I, I, I guess my time with Diageo was very interesting. And, you know, that during that duration of those months, I learned a lot within their business and have a lot more respect of how bigger businesses are run and how things are communicated. And um, it was definitely an eye opening from moving at speed to to going into, you know, to, to a Diageo of the world and understanding how they do things and the time it takes to, to, to formulate plans. And but once once the, the wheels are in motion, it's, um you know, it, it's huge. And we yeah we tend not to to look back so much but you're yeah you're just reminding me about this process and uh, and and yeah that's that's it really so yeah we're we're on to the next thing and I guess that that money's gone into our our next brands and building those brands up to um yeah to see what they can do in the future no lavish purchases I mean I'm really struggling to imagine you didn't buy that Lamborghini tractor that Jeremy Clarkson <laughs> has it doesn't fucking work but not anywhere near as well as all the cheap ones but it just feels like the right thing. I have an old um, 930 Porsche uh, 911 and I, I, I worked with a company called Tuthill on uh, renovating that a bit more. And um, I was actually luckily enough um, able to buy a Porsche tractor, um, which during the there war, we go. Porsche there we go. Making, finally uh, tractors. It's not as fancy as Jeremy's, but um, yeah, Porsche, Porsche makes some, used to make some great tractors and I've got one in the shed. Uh, which which I love, but I'm useless at mechanics and my brother has to come over and help me start it. Right, okay, yeah, fair enough. This is just about the look anyway, just about knowing that you have it in there. Don't, don't have to even necessarily, just for the photos. Don't even have to work on it. Don't even have to turn it on for the photos, James. What was it like mentally to be exited out of the family business? And, you know, you're just reflecting on giving it over to Diageo. Did you struggle with that? Like letting go? Yeah, I think I think it was really hard because... Yeah, there's that cheesy saying you you don't realise that you know until you're winning you don't realise until you're in the winner's enclosure that the thrill was in the chase and that's obviously very fitting for for my name but yeah all the fun work of building something and doing something and you know the passion of doing it and then stopping and realising your time has come to an end and and there was obviously you know a period of I couldn't go straight back into the to the booze industry so yeah it really hit me hit me quite hard and I was lucky that I had a an amazing girlfriend now wife around me at the time that you know that was very very supportive and and um and and you know whilst there's this massive upside that you've realized your dream there's also the the realization that you know I'm probably a little bit dyslexic didn't go to university and and I, I'm really keen to release my own brand and whilst I'm really still involved in in my father's work and what we do I was very conscious that I wanted to do something on my own but I'd obviously had a huge amount of support at Chase and we were a big team and and we had you know a great story to live off and the realization that you know you've you've got a you've got to start again and um then it really hit hit me very hard and um and and yeah that was that was probably quite a quite a shock and i think you know you've you've gone through that journey yourself and, and not not realizing it but there's only so much that you can 
you can bluff and then the hard work of actually coming into to trying to be an authority in that space takes takes a bloody lot of time and to get noticed again because suddenly you're emailing people and they might not get back to you or they might not take you seriously and you've got to get some authority and people's memories aren't aren't that long so whilst you probably have an okay chat record going into a new space was 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 yeah really tough for me but um but overall no um yeah we we were super happy but I, I guess the yeah the you know the downside is that now we have a nine month old baby and I've got to make sure that I leave a legacy and I'm I'm hungry enough to create a brand um, that that you know challenges other brands that we've built up and I guess there's that competitive element now that probably part of your question Dan is the relationship with my father and every day at Chase we were building something together and um, and now you know you're you're going into creating your own thing there's there's almost like a bit of a a competitive dynamic which which I love and I thrive off and I'm sure he does too but just like with those gin brands that we spoke earlier competition is really great and I bet you know we spur each other on which is which is good but you know that that's can be quite tough as well because you're you've got a working relationship as opposed to a uh, probably a bit more of a fluffy one but um but yeah no it's uh it's it's certainly interesting and, and the space I'm in now I have felt it a lot harder because you're not surrounded by alcohol that's fun and merry and you can bluff to a certain extent and tell stories you're in a you're in a very wellness you know cosmetics healthcare is a it's a very serious subject people take great um t- you know take a considered purchase it is a considered purchase what you put in your mouth and and you put on your body and you you can't you can't bluff that and you've got to be with the right partners and the right retail outlets and and the, the right authorities in that space to make it worthwhile and that was a real tough thing that um that kind of took took me took me by uh, by surprise so before we get on to uh, the new thing, where does Willie's fit into the story? Because not kidding, I do have two bottles of Willie's, in fact, in my fridge. And given the intensity of apple cider vinegar, it's not for everyone. It's not 100% for me, but I do religiously do it. I just stick it in my shake every day, which just, you know, drowns out the taste a little bit, um, I say. It's not necessarily true. Still tastes like apple cider vinegar, the whole thing. But anyway, it is the brand that I choose to buy. And it's an exceptionally great brand in potentially a niche category, but it's a huge niche. So I'm interested in when did that start? Like, where does that fit into the journey? So Dad is is the most amazing inventor and creator of ideas. And I, I mentioned those crossroads earlier where we took the distillery. Do we focus and do we take this avenue and put our our risk into hopefully finding a forever home of the distiller or do we do we go this direction and do we build out a portfolio of of brands you know that can that can go to market with and i think i think our own journey particularly was seeing the kind of murmurs of this non-alcoholic space and us as a family realizing that booze you know and 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 excessive drinking is is a bit of a you know is a bit of a, a barrier and, and a problem to to some but there potentially isn't so many you know non-alcoholic uh, drinks available of, of of great quality and um uh, willies really came about actually because we were developing a cider brand called willies um and, and at the farm that we have at uh, where my father's based has has about th- you know uh, several hundred acres of these three hundred year old apple orchards that we were selling at the time to local cider manufacturers like Westons and Bournemouths. and we also made a super premium gin called Williams Elegant Gin that was based off this off this cider fruit. It was exceptional and the, the tannins and the taste was great. But yeah, Herefordshire has real a real legacy in the cider market, and cider potentially was going to sit alongside our portfolio of spirits. Uh, we soon realised that we couldn't really premiumize cider. It was a it's quite a nascent category in terms of the the stereotypes that you might have against the cider drinker. And I say that lightly because I've got a few friends that love love drinking cider. Um, I've I've never been a cider man myself, and you saw craft beer go through a huge revolution because of the storytelling that you could you could tell around hops and botanicals. But yet cider was this kind of uh, bushy beard and wurzel gummage and it was a bit of a bit of a, a tough battle. But but as we started, you know, the fortunate thing with the distillery, we got to travel loads. And I'll always say, Dan, you know, a lot of our inspiration has come from trips to America where I think I do think they tend to spawn ideas a lot quicker, bigger population, GDP, or, you know, that. They, they 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 generate ideas ideas quicker, especially in the FMCG space, and that's obviously that's there's a few exceptions, and I'd, I'd obviously say like gin, the Brits were very good at kind of bringing back gin again. But you look at craft beer, 
you know, pulled pork, you know, the way that we eat and drink is, is really uprooted from America. And I think it was a trip out there again, back to see our American importer. And um, we saw, uh, the, you know, the rise of more gut focused uh, edibles that, that were making that, that gut life. And, you know, on the one hand, you've got spirits that make you happy, but, um, you know, what, what are they doing for your overall body health? And, and what we could look like. So with a kind of, not a failing brand, but with Willie's Cider not really going anywhere, we saw um, we saw some great in, in, innovation in America with one notable brand called Bragg's that was that was doing incredibly well in the marketplace. Um, we took a few bottles home and, and it turned out that my granny had been on it and uh, we had friends that had arthritis and they'd been drinking it for years. So as a, as a sideline brand, uh, we, we created or moved Willie's Cider over into Willie's ACV using the the cider fruit that comes off um, dad's farm um, and started fermenting it, getting getting our kind of team in, into that space and then creating its own production site just near Ledbury. Um, and and it's been a been a huge success. Willie's now is in uh, multiple retailers. Um, it's exported around the world, but um, but it, yeah, it comes back to probably probably William again and his story of kind of moving through that booze world, but actually realising you know, that, that his own wellness post-COVID is immensely important and his mind, body, soul and gut health is, you know, is paramount for that. And he, um, you know, just doesn't take willies, but he hopefully lives a bit more of a holistic wellness lifestyle. And um, and it's great to see. I'm on the willies turmeric and apple cider vinegar. So great for inflammation. And I do a bit of cycling. It's great for my joints. But yeah, just like you, Dan, I can't, I can't have it straight. I need to mix it with um, with a shake or with some hot water and honey. Yeah, I think it's one of those things yeah. that people are like, oh no, you grow into the taste, like coffee. And I uh, know oh, I've been doing it for years. It's not true. Um, <laughs> you just yeah. do it because it's healthy for you. It's one of those weird ones though, where it, it tastes so bad, not well, it's specifically, obviously that's not an insult. It just, <laughs> it tastes so bad to you uh, that uh, it tastes good. As in, you feel like you know it's doing good. There are just some things that feel like they're doing wonders for you. And that and that's part of it as well. I mean, you know, you, you've you've got what you're into in your clinical research, and the same with Winnie's. We we kind of underpin this with with some you know backbone of of science and uh, efficacy. But you know, for, for me, it's all about what that kind of holistic life leads with. And we hope that if you use Willies in the in the morning, and you know, chances are you might have a, a healthy natural skincare routine. Chances are you. You might have a salad for lunch. Chances are you, you might go for an exercise. So it's all about these these kind of little bits uh, that you do every day that you know trigger certain reactions that you do later on in that day, and and it and it compounds and it builds up. But yeah, I kind of read read the other day. I was a bit saddened that uh, at the last kind of Berkshire Hathaway get together that Warren Buffett eats a McDonald's every day and drinks yep. a Coke. Yeah. Um, so, so. So, so there's that you know there's that saying that you know you're you're um it's like a bit like roulette you're you know you're given a, a gun and, and it's totally. it's up to you when you pull I mean, the trigger it's like the yeah. oldest woman in the world she's like you know what is the secret to your uh success and she was like sex and smoking cigarettes every day like, well, <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly it's not what any of the health professionals wanted you to say but anyway okay so why hasn't go and when more importantly so so i, I moved so we realized as a board we needed to get this exit away for Chase and, 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 you know, caught with partners all around the world. And I, I'd moved to America, to Chicago at the start of 2019. I love the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but, but also um, Chicago, that's where it was based. But Chicago for me was... I was, by the way, hoping it was where it was based. Otherwise, like, <laughs> random reference, cool. And <laughs> um, yeah, we realised as a board, we, we needed to show growth in a key market. And obviously America... You know, America is key to any any global brand success, and if we could show some relative sales uplift, it'd be great to then, um, you know, court these uh, acquirers and and to sh to show this positivity. America, you know, is really ingrained in in drinking culture, and I mean, if you go to America, I go out there and I see friends, and they, you know, they go, they'll have a grey goose on the rocks with a cranberry twist, or da 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 da. Whereas we're still kind of figuring that out here in the UK, but. America, you know, so so ingrained in the spirit culture, and we we wanted to prove prove success out there. So I moved out to Chicago. I found that incredibly hard, and it was one of my biggest toughest challenges. I think with little support, little network, I know I, I felt um I felt it big time. But it was a point in my life where we built up to chase to to a, to a certain point within Europe. It was a new test for me, um, and as I moved out there, 
I found it very tough. And I was probably drinking seven days a week on a, on a Monday morning. You're in a liquor store in uh, in the West Loop in Chicago and having a new tot of whiskey uh, is, is probably acceptable with some other sales reps. And, and it kind of compounds and grows bigger. And, and I was flying a lot. Chicago is a great place to be located because you can... You can be at any city in in America within a you know within a few hours, uh, and and it and it wasn't it wasn't needed for myself, and I felt this immense pressure back home to conquer America, to get Chase listed everywhere, and ultimately, in in hindsight, probably didn't have the right armor, as I mentioned earlier. You know, as as Barack Obama pulled back that legislation, every city now has many many craft breweries and distilleries, and and I guess the whole world then and now has become incredibly more localized in their buying decisions. And and we found it very tough to compete as a preppy British brand where Chicago and every other city had local options that were were very good. Um, maybe not as good as Chase, but very good. Um, and I should have realized at that time we needed to be more remarkable. And it was something like Pink Grapefruit Gin um, that was doing very well in the UK and was our, you know, was our key driver. You know, that should have been brought over to the UK before I moved over there. But um yeah, I found it very tough. I was playing on social media probably quite a lot, drinking a lot, trying to make friends, and and it kind of all already spiraled downhill. And um, there was a there was like a pharmacy. It was like Blue Mercury out in Chicago, and I'd pop in there on a Saturday. And Americans are amazing sellers, and I was probably a bit hungover, and I was chatting to the lady there, and she was like, "Do you have a do you have a skincare routine?" And I was like, "Well, I use a bit of soap in the bath, and and I brush my teeth and things, but." Um, she said, you know, it's it's really, really important that guys slightly thicker skin have that have that routine in their life. And and she had a I think like a military husband. And uh, she said, look, in the military, the first thing they tell you is to prioritize yourself, because if you've got yourself in order, your, your life admin, yourself, your brain, your body and you make your bed and your rooms tidy, chances are you'll you'll really look after other people, you'll be kind to other people, but you'll you'll kind of get your stuff together. And that really resonated with me. And and she also said, you know, about her husband and his skincare routine. So I'm imagining this big kind of marine guy, you know, like using skincare. And um and I was really inspired. And I bought a load of product, bought loads of sun cream because Chicago and cities there get really hot. And obviously I haven't got much to protect me from the sun and melanomas and all these different things. And that 10 minutes down every morning really prioritized my day and just got me you know into a into a better routine of getting exercise in saying no to probably that whiskey at 10 a.m in the morning um in that in that spirit shop and 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 it was really a revelation it didn't happen overnight but it was definitely one of like the catalysts that that drove change and um yeah I've got her to thank for that and and I and I kind of was really inspired that if we ever were successful getting a deal away with Chase I would love to bring something in the market that targeted men that wasn't just using words like thunder or steel or David Beckham was an ambassador. Love his recent documentary, by the way, um, uh, or, or that kind of had grey packaging that spoke to me that maybe was made of natural ingredients or that had some storytelling in it. And I think, um, you know, at, at the time in the UK, Bulldog was kind of the, the benchmark, but just like Fever Tree have done with premiumizing Schweppes, I thought there was potential and opportunity to premiumize bulldog and bring to market something that just wasn't clarins or clinique for men that was uh was its own brand and 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 bazenko was yeah was born pretty much this time last year to ultimately grow a new future for for male skincare um championing vertical farming which um which we're which we're having great fun with why the name bazenko Names are really hard and we kind of used up Chase <laughs> uh, and where we're from. And you'll know this with, with heights and things, you know, finding a great name that uh, that resonates with people is bloody hard, not just from a marketing point of view, but from a trademark and, yeah. and everything else perspective. Yeah, imagine um, my surprise when I was able to actually call it heights. I mean, we had so many names before heights that were worse and no trademark this, no trademark that, and then Heights, and I was like, nope, no chance, and it was, and I was like, well, that's insane. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, it's a, a fantastic name, and you don't, you know, you, you can say it within your product title, and I think that was, mm. we were looking at, I think originally the brand playing a bit on D2C was the Skincare Farmers, um, and that was taken, but it was like a name that kind of summed up what we wanted to do, but Vertical Farming is the key piece in here, because at, at um, Chase, we we put a lot of research in about you know creating a marketing story that was a completely single estate gin. So 
potatoes grown by my brother, made into gin and vodka, but those botanicals would be sourced from this vertical vertical farm that we'd build at the distillery. And if for viewers or listeners that don't know, vertical farming is indoor hydroponic growing where it utilises 95% less water than commercial farming and zero herbicides and pesticides and the fact that you can grow 365 days a year. There's other pitfalls about energy prices and other complications with that that um, that you know that's been it's been kind of well publicized and I think they're doing a great job to work through that but um, but yeah uh, we, we did a lot of research around vertical farming and and how that would benefit us and and it was an idea that ultimately Diageo didn't want to go ahead with but I'd I realized that the storytelling was great and Dan when you visit one of these vertical farms the first thing you want to do is get out your phone and take a picture because it's just it's like Mike TV and Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory it's just um it's super inspiring um purple lights everywhere you know and green shoots coming off but um but yeah I'd ultimately realize what we had with the potato with the distillery and the crisps and the apples with Willy's I was really all for like a single ingredient that men are quite simple in their uh in their in their being maybe not me and you but most men are quite simple and and I thought I really needed to land this this one ingredient. So, Baz is is Basil, and the Co is um, in company with. So Baz and Co um, uh, was born, and Baz uh, was was free on trademark, and we register it. But the the key thing with with Basil um, or Basilicus in Greek uh, means king, so it's always been used as the king of herbs. Um, so it's not just great for pasta or pesto or to put on your pizza. Um, if you look back in, in ancient ancient Rome or in, in you know in the in the kind of way back when in, in you know uh, when they were when they were doing your thing, basil has always been used in aromatherapy and skin uh, treatments for its um, high amount of antioxidants and anti-inflammatory properties. So, whilst basil is a key component in our product, uh, we then supplement that with other ingredients and. Um, just like um, you know, a great aspiration brand of mine is like Lositan Provence, or Locutan, depends how you, you pronounce it, and um, they really championed lavender, and I thought that was a great way to talk about uh, a story. In in our case, was growing basil that grows very well in vertical farms, harvested all year round, turned into an essential oil, and then blended down to make our uh, four step routine, which is our body wash, uh, exfoliator, skin food moisturizer. Uh, and natural deodorant and basil is kind of the hero smell and, and property within within all of that and um, who knows one day uh, Baz might be the brand ambassador and is a kind of a figurehead for the brand but at the moment um, for the key tastemakers I, I still think understanding the natural products is a is a really important point for our for our brand. How do you find the difference as a long like long time member of all sorts of entrepreneurial endeavours at the end of the day everyone wants delicious crisps Everyone wants alcohol. Um, you can probably see where this one's going. This I know this from you know what we do at Heights. Uh, communicating quality and value is super hard in this space compared to I would imagine areas like uh, crisps and alcohol. How have you personally found the transition? Is it surprising? It's been it's been really hard because you know we used to do so many tours at Chase and. After a few drinks, everyone's laughing, and you could say the worst jokes in the world, but people would laugh because you're having a good well, that's time. It. You're hydroponic uh, farming the wrong thing, mate. <laughs> if you want everyone in the in 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 the, bar, in the vertical farm to be laughing, do this in Amsterdam. Do it where people are expecting to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I so that that's been a real challenge and a real you know one thing that really keeps me up at night is how I'm going to in, in you know get into popular culture and how how am I going to get my kind of personas and demographics and tribes that follow. Baz, you know, how am I going to really going to get to these men? Because, you know, following a skincare brand and getting into that, there's a, there's a huge challenge there. And um, I'm a great believer at a brand at our positioning. We we need to kind of not skew too much in efficacy, but we need to really be aspirational in, in, in what we're doing. And and that's yeah, that's been it's been a huge challenge. But we like to storytell around this vertical farm, around influencers or, or kind of athletic individuals that live this life and, and by the way they you know they really love and understand Baz and Co which is you know part of their part of their morning routine so yeah it, it's, it's been a huge challenge gifting is 30% of our business and gifting um, 
is you know of, often undertaken by the other half, uh, the male or the female, and they're buying it to to hopefully stop their husband nicking their own uh, skincare lines, which was a problem with me and my wife. Yeah, or or getting them to look and feel better, and you know it starts by body wash and moisturising and and feeling better. But um, for us, a big challenge in the business is unlocking retail because mm. uh, purely direct consumer brands can be. Uh, can be fairly tricky yeah and i suppose also you've got the benefit of people know uh in those retail spaces people are already looking for the solution that you're looking to uh, solve and on direct consumer it gets a little bit more challenging so james you've got this new business you've been going for a year I guess the usual point to ask at this uh, at this stage in someone's career like multiple businesses multiple exits behind you still just as motivated as ever or a bit tired. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm 33, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm super motivated. I think. Um, I think it's a hard world to live in if you're quite curious because you've got all the answers and everything on your phone, on your computer, on the internet, and um, and and everything is super competitive. You know, people inspire people. The news pushes people on, and 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 that we are ingrained. I think as a family to never settle, and we want to keep developing that and I'm really inspired by I've, I've worked seven days my voice is a little hoarse I worked seven days last week at the spirit of Christmas show in London London's Olympia speaking to many uh many people that were buying their Christmas gifts for this year and I love I love the thrill of the sale and speaking to to customers there that want to make their other halves more healthy and happier and I really you know really get off on that and I and I um I, I it's just the most amazing um feeling um to be doing that and I think being you know we all want to be taken seriously and we all want to grow something and and I guess I'll always have the thing behind me and, and on on my shoulder is creating a brand that um you know is, is more successful than than what we've done in the past so well you'll um, have that and the scars literally of uh <laughs> of, of making the potatoes um okay so uh final question for you what is your advice to entrepreneurs that want to go out and create great consumer brands of tomorrow? I think it's a I think it's a great question. I think really think about what it is that you want to do and I always thought Dan previously that it was do what you're passionate about. You know, I'm I'm quite passionate about cycling, but I would be the worst cycling instructor because I'm probably, you know, I'm I'm not probably that great at doing it. So I, I definitely think there's this whole passion and skill set divide and, and working it out working out what is it you're really good at and what you really enjoy doing and and then and then hopefully you know in a Venn diagram getting some passion in there as well because that will you know that will really drive and, and deliver you in, in 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 spades going down the line and it will make those um, tough nights uh, a lot easier when you're when you're struggling and you you know your back's against the wall that, that you know that you have the belief to see it through so really figure it out what is it that you're good at and then find something within within that space, and really go after it, and um, and surround yourself with people that give you the support and the advice. And my wife has been so supportive to me in this challenge because at the dining table at night time or in the morning, your friends and your family are listening to you, and and stop you probably making foolish decisions. And I'm sure that you've been there yourself. Um, it really is important to listen to people because um, you've got two ears and one mouth, and and listening to people's advice is is so important because you'll you'll pick up you know how how to fail and and how to to go there because a lot of a lot of successful people Dan I'm sure you, you've done this love love to be questioned and 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 talked to and they will give give so much advice and some of the best things I've done is just outreach to successful people and 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 ask them um you know questions and they're most of them have been more than happy to oblige so so yeah I hope, hope that answers the question does and it feels like a very meta way of describing exactly what I do every week at Secret Leaders. <laughs> so I feel very soon you caught me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. James, thank you so much for your time on Secret Leaders. Wishing you all the best, loving the products. And uh, yeah, from uh, feeding my gut to now, uh, you know, moisturizing my face. So you very much got yourself a good lifelong customer here. Cool. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, dude. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference and we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. This episode was produced by Alex Graham, Ruth Edwards, and all brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next time.